Good afternoon, everyone. You are tuned into the 102.5 WIKD LP Daytona Beach. And today we are joined by Barry Eccleston, the previous president and CEO of Airbus Americas. Welcome, Barry, to our studio and welcome to Daytona Beach. You have a presidential speaker series tonight, I believe. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind, and then we go ahead and jump into our questions. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much, Brandon and and Colin, for inviting me along to be with you today. Uh, It's actually my first visit to Embry-Riddle University. I feel very guilty saying that. I've been in the industry for 50 years and It's the first time I've got a chance to be here. And from what I've seen so far, I have to tell you that this place has blown me away. Research facilities, the student union building here, all the academic programs, uh, it was way beyond my expectations. So I'm having a really good day here. Thank you. Um, About myself, so Barry Eccleston, I'm retired president and CEO of Airbus Americas. Uh, For 12 and a half years, I looked after all the Airbus business here in North America. I retired 18 months ago from that role, having spent uh, 49 and a half years in the aerospace business. Born in the UK, went to a university in the UK called Loughborough, primarily in engineering, a small engineering college. It became a university while I was there. Graduated in 1969 with an aeronautical engineering degree. And that was a fascinating time to be joining the aerospace business. In 1969, first flight of the 747, first flight of Concorde, Apollo 11, of course, and indeed the birth of Airbus was in 69. So it was a great time, a very inspirational time to come into the business, and I've had just an amazing opportunity to have the career that I've had. After college, I I joined Rolls-Royce. At the time, Rolls-Royce, the aero engine maker, was the most reputable engineering industry in the UK, and I was lucky enough to get in on their graduate apprentice program. I joined with a degree, and then I sort of looked around the company, finished up uh, uh, in a permanent job. And again, my permanent job, I got really lucky. I became a flight test engineer, and my job was running in-flight tests on engines in high-performance military aeroplanes. Uh, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because I, I just loved high-speed aeroplanes. <laughs> but you can't do that forever. And so uh, I, I met a young lady. Um, we got married. We had kids. So I decided I had to grow up, uh, get a real job. Uh, and I became a sales engineer, uh, sort of a transition, if you like, from engineering into, into business and began to travel the world. Rolls-Royce sent us to Tokyo, Spent four years in Japan with Rolls-Royce, covering Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. Then back to the UK, got involved with the commercial airplane engine business, mostly airlines. Then came to the US, uh, came to live in the US in 1984 with the family, working on a program called the International Aero Engines V2500, a joint venture program between Rolls-Royce, Pratt & Whitney, some Japanese companies, uh, Germany, MTU, and Fiat in Italy. It was a five-nation collaboration. Everyone assumed it was going to fail because it was such a, I feel like, a sort of complicated collaboration to make work. But here we are now 30 years later, 8,000 engines later. It was the third most successful engine program uh, in the business. But I learned a lot about collaboration, the, the management or the art of management of collaborations. After that, I, I went back to Rolls-Royce proper, but still in North America, ran mm-hmm. Rolls-Royce North American Airline Sales. Very interesting and productive time. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Rolls-Royce then sent me up to Canada to run all the Rolls-Royce businesses in Canada, based in Toronto, uh, and then back again to IAE to run the business as president of IAE. Left Rolls-Royce uh, after 29 years. Um, I decided at that point if I was going to make a career elsewhere, it was time to do that before I stayed Rolls-Royce man and boy. Most people do that. So I left Rolls-Royce and joined Fairchild Dornier. Uh, an up-and-coming manufacturer in the regional jet business, just at the time when regional jets were becoming really popular. And we had some great products, and we had some success in the market, but 9-11 came along, and that kind of overtook us, 
and we run out of cash. And when you run out of cash, you go bankrupt. And then you learn a lot about bankruptcy, which is not necessarily enjoyable, but it was very interesting and educational exercise. I was out of work for six months after the bankruptcy. Uh, and then I joined, had an offer from Honeywell. Honeywell said, run, run the uh, aerospace business in Europe, based in Paris. Uh, not a bad place to be. Uh, so I went to Paris, and I've been there about a year. And Honeywell said, well, Barry, you know about engines. You're an engine guy. We need someone to run the engines business. Uh, proceed to Phoenix and, and take over the engines business. Honeywell, at the time, had 65,000 gas turbines in service. It was the largest number of gas turbines from any manufacturer. That's about a $1.5 billion to $2 billion a year business. So it was a nice little business to run. But I learned at Honeywell, I learned a lot about program management and professional management process, if you like. And then in 2005, Airbus called up and said, we'd like you to come and take over the role of uh, running Airbus North America. President, uh, which I said, yes, I'll do that. I signed up for five years. And uh, after 12 and a half years, finally, uh, my wife persuaded me to hang it up. Well, you kind of briefly talked about our first question already going over your history, which was, what was your first job out of college? Mm. Can you tell us a little more about the first job? Okay. So uh, at the time, Loughborough University, an engineering college, but in particular, one of the few in the UK that did aero engineering. And, and I specialized in gas turbine engineering. This wasn't because I particularly was interested in engines, although I was. It was really because of my professor at the time, a guy called Stan Stevens, who was my first mentor. And he was the one who taught me a lot about not just engineering and, and learning, but about how to get a job and what to do with it when you got it. And through Stan's contacts at Rolls-Royce, I was accepted into their graduate apprenticeship program. They, for every 10 applications, they had one position available. I was really lucky to get in, probably because of the relationships between uh, my university and, and Rolls-Royce Derby. They're only 10 miles apart, very mm. local. But I got into Rolls-Royce, which was my dream job having coming out of college. And the Rolls-Royce at the time had, the, say this, the apprenticeship program. So you'd spend six weeks. You'd go to sales. You'd go to engineering. You'd go to performance. You'd go to whatever, market planning. And you spend six weeks in each one. And along the way, you're supposed to find a sponsor who will offer you a real job, if you like. And I got lucky enough to get a, uh, a, a six-week period in, in the flight test department. And they then offered me my real job. But that wasn't the end of the story, because by now it's 18 months after I joined Rolls-Royce. It's 1971. In February 1971, Rolls-Royce went bankrupt. So here am I, newly minted out of college, bankrupt company, last in, first out, applied, and I was given my pink slip and said, okay, you're out of here in six weeks' time. During that six weeks, we were in the middle of a military program on the, the British F-4 Phantom, the F-2 F-4 Phantom, uh, and the airplane was being moved to another flight test location. And the guy who was running that program didn't want to move. And I was, if you like, his backup. And they said, Barry, can you move? And I said, sure, I'm footloose and fancy free. Count me in. So uh, I stayed with Rolls-Royce. I, I, I had got another job with Westlands in the helicopter business, but I stayed with Rolls-Royce, moved with the Phantom down to Bristol, and uh, just carried on working for Rolls-Royce for the next 29 years. But was there ever a point in your career where you ever struggled at all, like um, the, whether it be through where you weren't like working for the six months? or There, there, were, there were many points. Mm -hmm. There will be many points in your career where you're really struggling. Some are more dramatic than others. In, in my case, I can give you two dramatic examples. Okay. Uh, one was the being out of work for six months. Yeah, it's professionally, it's a bit of a setback. Uh, at the time, all the headhunters said to me, Barry, at your level, it will take you six months to find another job. Don't expect it to happen next week. Be patient. 
Uh, and it was exactly six months to the day when I then started work again, strangely enough. But during that six months, my wife told me I was unlivable with. It was a, it was a huge personal crisis uh, to my confidence. Not least because most of the guys who I had recruited at Fairchild Dornier had worked for me and they trusted me. And I brought them in and a company went bankrupt and they were out of a job too. And I felt very responsible for that. I learned a huge amount about myself and my empathy for my employees. And, and I put a lot of the blame for that on myself. So it wasn't so much that I was out of a job. I just felt very responsible for others. And it affected me very sincerely, personally. But then, as the headhunters had said, another job comes along, you start again, you sort of rebuild from there. Mm -hmm. uh, I would give you a second example, which was more of a professional challenge. I was working for Rolls-Royce, running the North American sales organization, and if I can say so, we were, uh, we were very successful. We had a great team, and the team got a lot of sales. And as a result of that, um, Rolls said, okay, we're gonna send you on a one-month-long management course, and then we're gonna send you to Canada to run all the business in Canada. I was totally unprepared for running the business in Canada. It was not selling airplanes or engines to airlines. It was running factories. And it was an engine factory, and it was an aftermarket business, and it was an airplane business, and it was even power generation, large power generators, transformers. But it was mostly running factories and trying to make it into a regional business in, in the country of Canada. Um, and I totally underestimated the transition from being uh, a sales guy, very customer oriented, to running factories and running businesses. And making difficult decisions did not come to me naturally. I learned later on how to do that, because you have to do that. But at the time, that was a, a professional challenge. Well, talking about your transitions from the sales side to the management side, how difficult was the transition from the engineering side to the business side before that? That's a good question, a, a very, very good question. I sort of made the transition from engineer to sales engineer, uh, to, to a salesman, to a much broader sort of marketing guy, and then into program management, which is something, something to do with customers, something to do with engineering, something to do with production and supply chain, a little bit of everything. Program management, by the way, is a great training ground. If you want to get into general management, I would highly recommend it. Uh, and then having done all that, then I moved into a general management position. Okay. How did your mindset change during all those transitions from the engineering to the business, business to the program management, how did it all change with how you had to think about handling issues that arose or how to get about to a new solution that would better the company along the way? Another great question. So uh, the, the sales stuff is, a lot of it's a personal interaction. Mm -hmm. Can you generate a personal relationship with the customer? Uh, and it turned out I was actually relatively good at that. And, and so that's, I had that ability and it served me well as a salesperson. Engineering, of course, was basically all about using data and uh, analyzing data and coming up with, with the right answer from that data. So that's what I was taught to do at university. So by that point, I had the data experience, the engineering experience. I had then the personal experience of interaction and working with customers. The challenging bit was when, it, when I moved into working with the rest of the organization. I assumed everybody was kind of like me. You know, everybody's out to please the customer. Everybody is a pleasant sort of guy or girl. Everybody is working in the same direction, rowing in the canoe in with the same paddle. And I found out life isn't like that. You know, people have their own agendas. Running a factory has very different metrics, if you like, than selling an airplane or an engine. Uh, and, and so I, I had to learn how to bring, A, to learn those new skills. What are the skills that apply to all the other stuff that I hadn't done? Mm -hmm. What are the issues that my factory manager is concerned about and how can I help him? And then I had to bring all that together 
from the top line point of view and say, okay, so how do, how do I bring all that together and run a successful, reliable, profitable business? This is where program management came in because program management skills capture all of that stuff. Uh, I had a lot of great program management training at Honeywell. Honeywell was really good at program management. Um, a lot of the guys were XGE, for example. So coming to the US, I learned a lot about program management. I learned a lot about bringing it all together, taking the holistic view and focusing on the bottom line. Okay. So you retired last year in February, I believe. That's right. And then Airbus fully acquired Bombardier, and I believe it was June or July of last year. So Airbus didn't fully acquire Bombardier. Airbus acquired the what was the C-Series program okay. uh, and has rebranded it as the Airbus A220 program. Okay. J- just that program. And in fact, didn't buy all that program. That program is a joint venture. It was called CSELP. And Airbus acquired the majority shareholding in the CSELP consortium, which was now Airbus, mm-hmm. Bombardier, and the province of Quebec government. Okay. So uh, that, that was the program that Airbus acquired. Well, did Airbus Americas have any role with it? Like, a, as the um, president of Airbus Americas, did you have any role in that acquirement, or was it mostly Airbus headquarters back in Europe? There's a little bit of sort of backstory, which I, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but I'll try and summarize it. Bombardier had been shopping around the C-Series program for about three years. Mm-hmm. They, they, did, they knew by 2016 that they were not going to be able to complete this program alone and they needed a partner to do it with Uh, and so they visited a number of different potential strategic partners including Boeing they had an approach from the Chinese and they also had a discussion with Airbus back three years ago and Airbus looked at it and at the time then with the state of the program then remember it had not been certified at that point the market was still unsure uh, Airbus decided no we we would take a pass and not buy into the C-Series program uh, Airbus at the time was very busy with its own programs. We were in the middle of doing the 320neo program, in the middle of launching the 350. Uh, we were real busy doing our own stuff and not really being sure of the C-Series future and the certification, uh, we decided to take a pass. Uh, fast forward to 2018, Bombardier had not succeeded in their discussion with Boeing. They had not gone anywhere in the discussion with the Chinese. And on top of that, they had the complication of the U.S. government trade action against them, which was a very serious issue, um, really brought by Boeing, but promoted by the U.S. government. For all these reasons, Bombardier was even more keen to find uh, a partner who would buy the majority. And so what they did was they caused a third party. It wasn't someone from Bombardier, but it was someone very high up uh, in Canada, very respected in Canada, who called Uh, Airbus Americas, uh, specifically me, uh, they decided they would call me and see if they could, if you like, use the side door back into Airbus and say, are you prepared to reopen and re-look at this discussion? Which, when when I took the case back to Toulouse, to the management, we looked at it and decided, yes, this this might now make sense. And at that point, Toulouse took took the negotiation over and it very quickly concluded. Earlier, you talked about how you had a mentor that kind of helped you gain footing within Rolls Royce. What are some good ways for students who are potentially seeking careers to create those connections that are going to help them get their foot in the door? That's one thing that I feel is a little underrated. A lot of people don't want to go out there and make the connections that they need to. What are some ways that you've done that? Because obviously you've turned out very, very successful, and there are a lot of kids that would like to follow the footprint that you've set forward in the same way. What are some ways that you've done that? So uh, another really good question, Colin. You guys are, are asking great questions. Thank you. I'm a strong believer in mentors, 
I think I think mentors are very very powerful. Uh, probably underestimated in the influence that it can have on individuals' careers. And I've been lucky enough to have some great mentors. I mentioned the guy out of the university, Stan Stevens. When I joined Rolls Royce, I had a mentor by the name of Alan Smith. And and what I what I said about Alan at, at his retirement was, it would be good if I could say that Alan taught me everything I know, but that would not be true. But what Alan did do was give me the opportunity to learn everything he knew. And to me, that's what a great mentor can do. However, there's one other criteria. The other criteria is you have to be able to look up to your mentor and say, this guy is really good. This is a guy I can learn from. Um, I have had bosses who I did not feel that way and they could never become my mentor, no matter whether they're my boss or not. I have other, bo- other bosses who I felt this guy is really good and in fact, they, had, they willingly became my mentor. How does it, how, your question was, how do students go out and find that? I don't have any magical plan that says, you know, walk up to the professor or walk up to your, you know, the local recruiting officer and say, you know, can you be my mentor? Or how do I? It didn't happen that way. It happened for me mostly through, A, having a boss who I looked up to and he, was willing, he or she was willing to be my mentor, or B, networking. If you have the right personality, it's a really important facet, if you have the right personality and you're happy going out networking, network for all you can. And you will come across more mentors than you can shake a stick at. And it will help you with your career and reputation as well. Thank you. Okay. From your experience in the aviation industry and even just touring campus earlier today, what role do you think Emory-Riddle and its graduates have played in developing and shaping the aviation industry? Since we pride ourselves on being like, oh, the Harvard of the sky, number one in aerospace and all this, how do, you, how do you think that Embry-Riddle has helped shape the industry? So I was trying to think of an analogy, but you just said it, the Harvard of the sky. It's a terrific analogy for what Embry-Riddle does for the aerospace business. In my 50 years, everywhere you go, you run into Embry-Riddle graduates and alumni. Everywhere you go, people talk about Embry-Riddle's doing this or Embry-Riddle's the best place to go and get your flight training, blah, blah, blah. So I was, the, the reputation, if you like, precedes what you do. But until I came here, I had no idea what was behind that reputation that precedes you. And it's a stunning, stunning campus with terrific programs, excellent faculty, wonderful student body. And I think this building here, this, the new Students' Union, is just an amazing facility, uh, a great selling point for the university. But most important of all, everywhere you go in this industry, you will run into Embry-Riddle alumni. And when you do that, you know these are the guys who make our business work. These are the, this is the lifeblood of our industry, if you like. Well, we only got one more question, and feel free to add anything after it. But I noticed you received the Order of the British Empire, I believe, earlier this year. How did that feel to receive that? <laughs> well... You'll have gathered from our discussion already that I'm, I'm very rarely speechless, in fact, never speechless. I had a call from the British Embassy in Washington, I, I know them quite well, uh, uh, back about a year ago, and they said, could I stop by for a cup of coffee? So I stopped by, and the, people, the person concerned said, so you know why you're here? And I said, no, I've no idea. You asked me to stop and have a cup of coffee. And the lady said, well, we recommended, and you have been agreed to receive the OBE, Office of the British Empire, in the Order of the British Empire. I was absolutely speechless. I mean, for like, must have been 20, 30 seconds, which is an eternity for me, I was speechless because I was so emotionally overcome. As a Brit, only if you're a Brit can you probably understand the significance of being recognized by your own country's 
not just government, but royalty, in this case the Queen approves the list, for services that I've freely given throughout my career. I didn't do this to, to win any awards or anything, I just did it because it was the right thing and I wanted to do it. But for someone at that level in my home government to say, hey, we recognize what you've done and we want to give you this honor, it was just absolutely stunning for me. So what did it feel like? I felt very honored, if you'll excuse the pun, mm -hmm. but it's the only way I can really answer your question. Mm -hmm. That's a perfectly fine answer. Well, thank you so much for coming on the recording today. It's been an honor getting to know you. Thank you for answering our questions. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Colin. And thanks for what you do for Embry-Riddle. Appreciate it.